This episode is brought to you by Bray Wealth Insights. As an entrepreneur, there are many things to know. Bray Wealth Insights is in the business of helping business owners gain clarity. Many owners do not understand the importance of the relationship between their business, their personal estate plan, and their workforce. Bray Wealth Insights helps entrepreneurs to build business continuation plans, recruit, retain, and reward key employees. And with cutting edge surveys and tools, they help owners to understand what their workforce values. For more information, you can contact Bray Wealth Insights at info at braywi.com. That's I-N-F-O at B-R-A-E-W-I.com. Now back to our regular scheduled programming. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Leverage and Beverage, a show about business and lots of insights into some really cool beverages. We'll hear stories and talk business and chat about tasting notes. I'm Greg Sobosinski. On the show today, we have Rob Lawless of uh, Rob's 10K Friends. Uh, Rob, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. How are you? Good, good, good. Um, so let's just start off. What's on your mind, Rob? What's going on with you? Not too much. I was home for my dad's birthday yesterday, so back in Narstown, where I'm originally from, Four doors down from your cousins. Yeah, it's so it's so crazy. It's such a small world. Yeah, who would have thought? Uh, when I saw your last name, I was like, I don't see that often. So I, <laughs> I would bet. Um, but yeah, and then doing the project, I'm trying to meet. Well, I'm, I'm on a mission to spend an hour with ten thousand people, but I'm trying to meet like four people a day right now. Hmm. Building a speaking business to have income to support the project. So my life is it's relatively like boring right now. Yeah, in a good way. There's not. I mean, not much going on other than the stuff that's supposed to be going on. Got it. So is this one of those times today? Am I one of those people that? Yeah. Of yeah. Yep. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so, you know, I heard about this. I was introduced to you by, through a friend um, and this whole concept of what you're doing. Basically, it's this movement. It's this um, project that you're working on. It's really to have 10,000 conversations mm -hmm. over the course of a period of time. Um where did this come from? Like, what's the backstory behind this? Like, what are the pieces in your life that kind of led up to what this is? So I think it goes all the way back to being a people person from mm. childhood. I've, I've always been an outgoing person because sometimes people are like, oh, are you doing this because you were shy and you thought it would be a good way to break out of your shell? And no, it was just, I've always loved meeting people. So I wanted to mm. play to my strengths. So I went to visitation, BVM, grade school and trooper PA. And then I went to Kennedy Kenrick Catholic high school and mm -hmm. I remember being excited for high school because I was like, oh, there's more people in this school now. So it was an opportunity to meet more people. Right. And then I decided to go to Penn State University, which again was like much more people. Yeah. And the fact that there are 40,000 students for me was not a detriment at all. That was a big draw for me because I thought there will always be new people to get to know, even though I'll make good friends here. And I did that. I was involved in the Penn State Dance Marathon I became a tour guide for prospective students. I joined a fraternity that restarted. I was doing Habitat for Humanity trips over spring breaks. I was a homecoming captain. So every year I'd add like a new group of people into my existing network. Hmm. And the campus became very small to me. And I think that feeling was something I really loved running into familiar faces on the way to class, out at the bars, hmm. whatever. 
so I studied finance and minored in accounting and entrepreneurship. And I think the entrepreneurship was a big thing. Nice. Yeah. I was always excited about the idea of escaping the corporate life path. I mm. think we yeah. were like the same age. So growing up in the time that we grew up where you see Instagram being bought by Facebook for a billion dollars after like a year and then Snapchat and Facebook and all these different tech companies taking off by young people. I was like, well, that seems so much better than sitting in an office until 65 and then retiring. Right. But I was also pretty logical and wanted to do a safe, secure route at the beginning. So I did consulting for Deloitte after school, very quickly realized it wasn't for me, even though I was getting paid well. What what about it like wasn't for you? Was it just because it was so, um, you know, monotonous? Maybe people thought that that was the route you were supposed to take. Like what, what was it that, what didn't hit home for you? Well, I thought that there would be a lot of human interaction in consulting. Like you're working mm. with all of these clients, you're helping them with their needs. And that just wasn't true, at least from the analyst standpoint. So I was doing strategy and operations consulting and I was a business analyst and my life looked like 12 hours a day of taking notes on calls, formatting PowerPoint slides, formatting Excel sheets, not doing anything stimulating, hmm. like doing all of the grunt work, which I can appreciate because at a company that big, the shade of blue on a slide being consistent could be the difference between you and PwC getting a deal. So I'm not a very detail-oriented person. It hmm. forced me to be that way. And it's actually been a benefit in my life to, to have that education, if you will. Sure. But it was that where I, I felt like I could go 110 miles an hour, but Deloitte was like, no, you can only go 40 because you're a 22-year-old who doesn't know what you're doing. Hmm. Whereas then I look out in the tech scene, and I'm like, these people are going 150 miles per hour because they're CEO of this company that they started. And so people treat them like they're CEO because they are. And mm. it just, I felt like I wasn't living up to my potential. And the other thing was I didn't have control over my life. And I think that's always been a big thing for me because I would start my day at like 8 a.m. and I would end it when someone else told me my day ended. It was some days mm. it was six, if you were lucky. A lot of days it was eight. Some days it was midnight. And then sometimes on the weekends, like I remember getting an email I was always good about putting my phone and computer away. And I got an email. Well, I checked my email for the first time on a Sunday at like 2 p.m. And my manager had emailed me like Friday night late. and was like, hey, I'm really sorry to do this to you, but you have to work this weekend. And I need you to have this information to me, this finalized project by Sunday at 11 a.m. And I was like, well, that's not happening because it's already Sunday at 2. So then I actually went and did the work, but I still I didn't like that someone else especially because of the way that they managed. Hmm. Like if a manager was inefficient, that trickled down to me. You know, hmm. I had a manager who kept our team in the office till 3 a.m. one night and I left at nine because I had interviewed to go to this tech startup and I was pretty sure that I was going to go there. So I was like, I don't, I don't need to do this anymore. And she was just a really bad manager and she negatively impacted the whole team they all didn't come in the next day until noon I came in the next day at eight because I left early so a lot of that stuff with someone else controlling my life it, it wasn't worth the payment that I was getting hmm. what, what type of uh, I guess feelings did that elicit because I, I think a lot of people who are either in the corporate world or doing something that they don't really feel they want to be doing or um, I guess that 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 lack of autonomy or something, mm -hmm. it can kind of, you know, make you, 
I don't know, disgruntled, but almost like so slow and steady. You might not even realize it's happening. You're like, I don't mind staying until seven. Okay, that's fine. And before you know it, it's like nine o'clock, like every single day. And it's like, well, you know, so, so maybe talk about that a little bit. I'm kind of curious. It's like, what was it for you? Was it like a slow trickle or for you were like, I kind of know right away. This is kind of so against what I want. I kind of knew right away. I mean, I started August of 2013 and by January of 2014, whatever that is, like five months or four months, I had a note in my iPhone notes that said, I'm going to meet 10,000 people for 10 minutes each in one year. And that was the basis of what became my mission to spend an hour one-on-one with 10,000 people. Right. But yeah, I just quickly knew it wasn't for me, but I still, my mindset was, I'm not going to seek to leave Deloitte because I know I'm in a really good situation. If I had stayed, they would have paid for me to get my MBA full-time from like Wharton or Harvard or Columbia, like while my colleagues went there. So it was, I thought I was going to be at Deloitte for seven years minimum because you do two as an analyst, one as a consultant, you get your MBA full-time for two years and then you commit two years back to the firm and that's when they pay it off. Mm -hmm. And I thought for sure, like, yeah, I'm going to have a a Wharton MBA or whatever. I, I wanted that prestige and I wanted that key to open doors in the future. Hmm. But then the longer I was there, I, I decided I want to live a life that doesn't require an MBA to be successful. And through a project in Kentucky, so I was going there Monday through Friday every week, the senior consultant on the project was from Houston. And he was like, well, I have one of my best friends from high school is the director of sales at this startup in Philadelphia. You have an interest in entrepreneurship. You should chat with him. And I did. And then I ended up joining that company. So, hmm. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting. I'm thinking about your background here. And so you were finance and accounting, entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, I was um, accounting and finance. Senior year, I moved to business management because I didn't really want to be in the accounting field. So a lot of the same courses, but business management move. And me and a couple of friends actually started an entrepreneurship club in college. Mm. And for, for me, I don't know what it is, but I've always kind of had that inkling of you know, something about forging your own path. I almost feel like that's kind of the same um, thing I'm, I'm hearing from you is that you don't really want to be told what to do or when to do it. And it's like, if I can couple that with this human interaction component, those seem to be pretty good ingredients for like a, a, a good, a happy life, more or, more or less. Is that is that right? Is that sound right? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a, and it's a really stimulating thing to work on, finding something that you love and then figuring out how to make that work whether it's meeting 10,000 people or podcasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think when you were talking about the emotions that Deloitte elicited, it was just a discomfort from not having that flexibility. But I think a lot of the people that stay, they value the security very highly. Mm. And I don't, like, I don't care to be secure if it means I don't have flexibility. Mm. And on the flip side of that, I'm really okay with taking a big risk if I feel like it will work out for me in the long run and a lot of that is like I've calibrated trust in myself over the years to trust myself when taking a risk Hmm. but yeah a lot of people now because they're like I went like five years without really making any money at all in my project and people are like wow it takes like it takes uh, a lot of balls to do that and I'm like yeah I don't know it just felt very it didn't feel like a huge thing for me because I always trusted myself Hmm. Yeah, it seems like, you know, even in the, in the corporate world, at least from your experience, it's almost like, do you think everyone feels that way to a certain degree? Like they feel like they're kind of in this middle ground between like security and risk and they're all trying to constantly weigh that. And so maybe they're feeling the exact same things you were feeling, but they just can't 
take that leap because they're just like, well, I need, I need this. You know what I mean? Yes. I think that there's a lot of people who don't like their jobs. Like I have friends that don't like their jobs, but they're not going to change their situation because of the security that it has. And then whereas our paths kind of differed because I started this when I was 24, like me versus my friends, they all then got married and then they bought their house and then they got their car. And so the golden handcuffs, you have this lifestyle that requires a job to allow you to pay your mortgage and to feed your dog and whatnot. And I had none of that stuff. So I was very free to, to go out wherever, do whatever, because my expenses were very low. Hmm. So, but I will say I've met people who are in the corporate world that absolutely love their job too. Hmm. So I think it's just a personality type mm -hmm. type fit or not. Um, okay. So let's go back to the, this 10,000 one-on-ones. Did you have a time frame for this or when you wanted to do it or did it start with a time frame and you're like, yeah, I'm just going to hit, look for the number no matter when it hits. It was more the latter. Yeah. Cause when, when I first started it, I was like, okay, I'll do 10 minutes with each person. I'll do it in a year. It'll be so popular. I'll never have to worry about working again. <laughs> yeah. And super naive. It was a terrible idea. It was terrible to think in that way. And it sat in my iPhone notes for a year and a half as a result of that. And then I left Deloitte. I went to this tech startup. I was doing 30 minute sales calls with them. And I realized how surface level a 30 minute conversation could be. So I was like, well, let me try to meet with everyone for an hour because then maybe that would give us enough time to run out of topics to talk about and have to dive a level deeper with each other. Hmm. So yeah, I started uh, thinking of doing an hour with each person, but yeah, what was the, I lost my train of thought. What was the original question there? So I guess, uh, was there a time like constraint? Oh yeah, yeah. To do this so yeah, I thought at first I would do it for a year. And then when I started reaching out to people in the early days, cause again, I was just doing sales. So I would have these interactions with people and I'd reach out, find their emails, shoot them a message. It wasn't crazy for me to ask for a random stranger's time. Mm -hmm. So as I started to do this, then I applied it to my project and I would email people and be like, Hey, I'm going to do this in aggressively about four years. Mm. And I just, I think what I thought was take a nine hour workday, split it into nine hours of conversation. And there you go. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize the time that it took to set conversations up or to travel to them or to write about people afterwards. So it just lengthened and lengthened and lengthened. <laughs> yeah. And I'm seven and a half years into it. I think it's going to be like eight years before I finish. So yeah. I think all in all, it's going to be like a 15 year project. Yeah. So um, that's one thing I think people in business a lot or, you know, in any type of movement um, that they'll they try to think about is there, there's the activity itself and there's all the other just like tangential stuff that comes along with it. Like even me, even like setting up client meetings and like I, I'm very robust in how I try to do things um, throughout the day, meaning I'll, 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 I'll be like, man, I really thought I was going to accomplish way more today. Mm -hmm. But it, I think it's just because I, I, I expect so much when maybe that's not even feasible. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's like the iceberg where 10% yeah. is above the surface and 90% is below. And I always tell people, if I thought of literally everything that I could have perceived at the time and thought of regarding my project, before starting it like if i could have prepared for everything i could have thought of i would have thought about of about five percent of what i know now hmm. the other 95 percent, i was only going to learn through experience and i think that is a lesson in entrepreneurship because you hear people be like well i want to wait for the right time to do this i want to 
wait for the perfect time once I have everything together. Mm. And it's like, okay, we'll get your 5% together. But you you think that you're going to have it all together and then you're launched and then you're at this stable path, but you come across so many obstacles and then you solve those obstacles and that's how you develop the skills to be a good entrepreneur. Yeah. And even I've seen so many times where people start a business and because of they've, they've started and they're getting uh, either customer feedback or whatever, the business actually makes a turn and then it becomes successful because of they got the feedback from their, their clientele. And so, you know, I think that's a hundred percent right. And I don't know, I guess it's part personality trait and part, maybe some of that experience that you're talking about is just getting out there and doing is probably one of the best ways to learn. Obviously, you know, you want to learn from people before you as well and not make similar mistakes. And so, yeah, take all that knowledge that you can. Maybe that's that 5% we're talking about. And then from there, just, just kind of run. And it's, you know, it's about mitigating the risk part too, because obviously there's going to be, you know, hurdles, ups, ups and downs. That's kind of what this podcast is all about is, you know, some of the ups and downs of starting a movement or starting a, a company. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, almost all business owners are, are better for it. Yeah. And how long have you been doing the podcast now? So I've been doing it for about two years. Okay. Um, it's been a little bit of, again, um, a slower growth than I would like as far as number of episodes. Like for me personally, I want to get to the point where, you know, I can do maybe like two a week, but you know, all the other things we're talking about, the time stuff and, you know, you still have the main business to, to worry about. So all those things, but I, I kind of started similar to you in that I had written down something. I was like, okay, I want to start this by the beginning of, I think it was like 2020 or 2021. I was like, I want to start it and I'm just going to do it. It's not gonna be perfect. The audio quality won't be maybe the best, or it might be kind of, you know, um, a little bit, um, unhinged, but you know, whatever, I'm just going to do it. But you know, that happened Did the first one. Okay. Then I improved and went on from there. So it was kind of like this back and forth dance that if I hadn't done it though, I, I would be kind of looking back at myself right now being like, well, why didn't you do that? Where could you have been? Had you had started at that point? Yeah. Um, I love that though. I think s- starting with not like instead of getting all the expensive equipment right away start with what you have and scale the like quality of the stuff you have as you sort of scale and know that you're interested in the thing that you're doing yeah yeah and if you're passionate about it when you don't have all the nice things then you'll be passionate about it when you do have the nice things. yeah it's weird man it's a weird thing when you really just enjoy something and you really just like push at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there are days that, that, you know, they suck. You're like, I don't feel like doing this. You have, you know, mic mishaps or whatever it is, but you're like, Hey, you know, it, it's all worth it at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, let's kind of come back to some of the, the 10,000 people. So where are you right now? Where are we right now? We are, I should have looked this up before, but I'll find this very quickly. So 5,698. You're number hmm. 5,698. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Maybe, uh, I'll, maybe I'll play the lotto on those numbers or something. <laughs> yeah. And actually, so today is June 25th that we're recording. June 27th will be seven years since I have taken this full time. Wow. June 27th of 2016 was my first day of full time meetings. Wow. And November 11th of 2015 was the first person I met. So I have two kind of anniversaries with the project. One in the sense that I started it and then one where it's been my full-time thing. Hmm. And so if we're talking about 10,000 conversations, I have to imagine you've learned an immense amount of information, both from like factual stuff about these people, about what their lives are like, things that they find of interest. If you have 
you know, if you know their cousins or not, you know what I mean? But then I feel like you also just learn a bunch about relating to humans. Um, so let me talk about that. I'm kind of curious about that. Yeah, there's a, a ton of learnings and different categories of learnings. I was talking to this guy this week from Italy. He lives hmm. in Switzerland now. So we connected <laughs> through Zoom and he used the phrase crossing the Rubicon. Have you ever heard that? I've heard uh, crossing the chasm, but never the Rubicon. Okay. I've read the book. Well, I've read part of the book, Crossing the Chasm. Yeah. But crossing the Rubicon is, I think it's similar to like, well, you've made your bed. Now you have to sleep in it. Hmm. It was something with Caesar. And like, if you crossed this certain river in Italy that they were like, okay, well then we're going to, you are then an enemy of the state. And Hmm. it was either him or some army crossed and they were like, well, I've crossed now. So there's no going back. So it was just a phrase that I had known nothing hmm. about before. And, or he told me he lives, he grew up in Messina in Sicily. I didn't know that Messina was a place that existed. So now I know of a town or a city in Sicily and it might be like medical diagnoses that I've heard of, of people like osteogenesis imperfecta or like brittle bone disease, knew nothing about that. Didn't know that it existed. Now I've met multiple people that have had it or what it takes to become a surgeon. I did a partnership with Penn Medicine. I met six of their surgeons and the path that you have to go through with medical school and residency and fellowship and all that stuff. It's like, I feel like I can talk to doctors now and relate to them. <laughs> but I haven't gone through it. I've just talked to a lot of other people who have. Mm. And it's the same thing. Like there's so many, if I meet someone from India, I obviously, I don't have the experience of living there or ever even having been there but I can talk to them about their culture in a way that feels more than just a total stranger because I've met so many other people who've lived there and grown up there. So it's really interesting in that sense. And then I think in connecting with people, it sounds, so now when I do my speeches, I give this friend framework as a way to get to know people. And it stands for family and relationships, industry, which is like your education and career entertainment which is your hobbies and then needs and dreams which is like what do you want to do in the future and what do you need to get there and anyone in the world their lives can be broken down into those categories it doesn't matter if you're from syria or if you're from brazil or if you're from lebanon whatever the deal everyone has a family dynamic everyone has some type of career path that they're doing everyone has things that they like doing outside of work and everyone has places of where they want to go in their future so it's been really easy to relate to people once you realize that thematically we all have those things then it's just a matter of uncovering what do those details look like for you hmm. yeah I, I you know it's it's almost like to me when i first heard this i was like wow it, it seems like you just become not only a, a better uh conversationalist you become better at kind of pulling things out of people really understanding what they're about it's almost like getting reps in you know what i mean <laughs> like going to the gym and just getting being there every day and getting things done it's kind of the same thing i have to imagine to some degree um, but like the, I know what you mean as far as being able to go to a place where now, even if you haven't been there directly, it's like, now I have knowledge from just from having conversation that I can now inject into new conversations. It's like this, it's like this, you know, ongoing synthesis of ideas of, oh, I, I pull from here and here. And now this is being fused into a new conversation. And this conversation might transform future conversations. And I don't know, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like entrepreneurship in like a, a nutshell where you're, you're pulling things in and you're kind of just starting and then it kind of evolves into something different. You, you might go where you don't even expect it to go. Yeah, for sure. And I think the, definitely the more you talk with people, the, the bigger your library of topics to pull from becomes. Mm. And 
it's almost like the experience that we had where it's like we realized that I grew up on the same street as your cousins. All of a sudden, there's a familiarity there that wasn't there before, right? Mm. So we are a little bit closer as a result of knowing that fact. And it's like talking to someone from Ecuador. I met people from Quito and they told me about this festival called Fiestas de Quito. <clears throat> and it's like a fun party and I, I want to go and be part of that. So if I talk to people from Ecuador and I bring that up, then all of a sudden there's a familiarity that I have with them that wasn't there before because they're like, oh, I know something about my culture that maybe people outside of Ecuador don't always know. Hmm. So it, it brings you together and... Yeah, I love it. I do. I think you can become a better conversationalist just by having more conversations, which obviously is a a fact. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think is the general perception on people's willingness to have conversations? Obviously, I think some people are more predisposed to want to have conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, to me and to you, it's it's provide conversation provides value. Um. So if you were to run the clock, like maybe 10, 15 years, do you think people in general were more or less willing to have conversation? I think it was probably the same. The same? I think that there's this narrative now where it's like, oh, the young people don't know how to talk to each other. They hmm. have technology, COVID. They're so scared of each other, all this stuff. But I think there's always going to be people that are people people and want to chat and like conversations. There's always going to be the people who don't want to go out and are scared of people. And then there'll be like the people in between. But I feel like it, it was probably the same in 1950. It's probably like mm. the same in 1970. And yeah, I think that bell curve will always exist. It reminds me of like kids these days. Like kids these days don't know how to get <laughs> yeah. Like they said that in the 70s or whatever, when Elvis was becoming a thing or 60s, whenever he was big. And then they say it with like hip hop or whatever. They say it with all, all the new stuff. It's always kids these days. But yeah, I think, I don't know. I, I do think people fear each other though. I think that's one of the reasons that they don't have more conversations. And you and I obviously have a different perspective, but I think a lot of people operate with the mindset that the people that they know are the normal ones. And then everyone else out there is the crazies. And I Mm. think that's kind of probably a result of things like watching the news. If you turn on even the local news at 6 PM, it's like, here's 10 terrible things that happened in the day. And here's a nice story to send you off. What? That's not accurate like that uh <laughs> it's not an accurate portrayal of the events that are actually going on in the world but i think it creates a little bit of fear and i think especially from an international standpoint people are like oh well, these people are bad people because they live in here they live there whatever and it's not the case when i've talked to people from 90 different countries now around the world everyone's like yeah my parents are putting pressure on me to have this career or to get married or to do this or that and I want to have friends and I like watching this TV show. It's like copy and paste the experience. Hmm. Yeah, that's really, I mean, I, yeah, I think some people sometimes think uh, even in the, it's it almost like this hubbub or this general sense that like um, certain segments of people are so different. You know what I mean? Whether that's by country or whatever the case is, when it's really not the case at all. And I think, you know, any ideology that just tries to like, mass group people together and it's like it's like you've seen this like first firsthand it's like you've had what 119 countries on probably countless ethnicities and races and um you know it kind of just teaches you and something that i've learned is really just to talk to people as an individual you know what i mean mm-hmm. like I, I don't know um i think that's where that fear comes from it's like this the fear of the other 
when we're all just in, when we're all just individuals and it's kind of like, okay, well, they're all just kind of like me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've learned to do that through my project. I think instead of trying to assume that someone is a certain way and like throw out something that I think they might be interested in and try to connect on that point, instead hmm. of making assumptions, I'll just sit back and let them tell me who they are. And that's how I think about people's lives, like a timeline now. And I'm just trying to figure out what are the experiences that make up their timeline. Hmm. And then the benefit of that is like, then if they believe something that's different than you believe, you can understand why, because you understand the experiences that they've been through that have led to that belief. Hmm. What's, what's the the biggest thing um, that you think you've learned from this project thus far? Obviously it's not done yet. You know, maybe it might change by the end, but so far, what, what's the biggest thing that that's, you've pulled out, I guess, from these conversations? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing, and I feel like you will be able to relate to this and a lot of the people, well, everyone that you have on your show, and I think everyone in general, is that no one really knows what they're doing with their lives. Everyone's just doing the best they can with the resources that they have. And it's like podcasting. Okay, I have an interest in podcasting. I don't know how to do this. Like what, what equipment do I need? How do I grow the show? How do I get listeners? How do I get right. sponsors or whatever? But you have the resources of like, okay, well, I can use this money to buy equipment or I have this Mac that is good with recording or whatever. And you start to use your resources and do the best that you can. And then you just level up as you do it. But it's the same thing as being a new parent. Like you have the baby, they send you home from the hospital until you don't shake the baby. And it's not like they give you a guidebook or that you get the answers to the test beforehand. Mm. Like all those parents have that uncertainty and that insecurity about, am I being a good parent? Am I parenting better than this person? Or like, are they doing better with their kids? Their kids sleep through the night, do mine. So all this different stuff and, or being 40 years old and making a career change. Like people have insecurity about that. So of all ages and levels of success, when I've said that to people, they've been able to relate to it. And I think that's probably the most universal thing that I've discovered through my project. I think that's so true. I think the idea that a lot of most people just, you know, are trying to figure out things that might not know exactly how it is, how, how what they're supposed to be doing. I think that's so true. But I think there's also that's kind of where some of that fear or insecurity comes from. And I think, you know, a lot of people have felt that me at times, other people at times, pretty much everyone at times is that sense of, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? You know what I mean? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? But then like the whole supposition or the whole idea behind it is really, well, you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to be doing is figuring out what you're supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? It's this constant, just figuring out process. And so it's almost like, don't be fearful about that because it's just what life is like you are hitting the question you're asking is hitting it at the core of why we're here to begin with um but do you think that 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 sense of people not knowing um what they're supposed to be doing do you think that is um where some of this fear comes from that we we've touched on i think that there's um an expectation that you're supposed to figure out who you are at like 18 years old and then you become that person and then you operate on a linear path upwards towards success and mm. i'm trying to think of like the statue of david for example like mm. that was once a marble block and is now this beautiful statue i feel like too many people think that they're chiseling from 18 to 22 and then at 22 they're supposed to be this statue that's put out there for other people to see and they're so impressed by it 
Whereas what actually is happening is you're chiseling that block of stone your entire life. Mm. And maybe you'll get to <clears throat> something by the time you're 80 or 90 or whatever, but I don't think you ever stop chiseling. I, and I think that's where people go wrong is they don't see themselves as a work in progress all the time. And then mm. because they actually are a work in progress, they feel bad about that. I'm like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to be this. Like, I'm supposed to have everything figured out by now. Everyone but me knows what they're doing. Everyone but me knows how to do this or that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's just a mindset shift because if you allow yourself to be like, I'm laying myself out on the operating table and I'm tinkering with myself throughout life to figure out, oh, maybe I do like this thing or maybe I don't. Or for me, speaking was not something that I ever planned to do through my project. It's the main way that I make money now. And it was not something that I was confident with. And I had the mindset of like, I don't need to be confident by my 20th speech. I'd like to be confident by my 200th speech. And too many people are like, well, I did two and I was really nervous and it didn't go well. So it's not for me. Hmm. Yeah. I, I almost feel like now that I'm thinking about it, there's almost like all of these arbitrary start and finish lines, whether that's like, oh, you know, college, start, finish. I'm done. I'm done formally learning. You know what I mean? Or um, your child's 18. Okay. I'm done being a real parent. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, uh, I'm 65 and now is I'm done working. You know what I mean? It's just like, people seem to think in these boxes because that's how the information is presented, mm -hmm. but it's almost like presenting it in that way. I don't know. It hamstrings people from really maybe experimenting in the ways that they should, or, pushing themselves in ways that might be more beneficial to themselves long-term. Does that resonate? Yeah. And I think that there is a lot of pressure of them to want to appear successful in the eyes of their friends, in the eyes of their parents and stuff. And I think it goes back to that security. My parents were not happy with me choosing to do this project over having a great salary at Deloitte and MBA. Hmm. So it took a really long time for me to ignore their opinions and just continue what I was doing until it started to play out in a way where they could see the vision. Yeah. And again, I'm one of those people where I'm like, I don't care. I don't need this. I love my parents. They're great parents, by the way, but like, <laughs> I don't need the security of you saying this. We're really happy with what you're doing because I trust myself more than I trust their viewpoint of my career path. I take their opinion into account for a ton of different things. But I see a lot of people will be dismayed if their parents don't agree with them and then they stay in the company. Maybe they don't pursue the thing that they're truly passionate about, but they pursue the thing that their parents are passionate about. Hmm. So how do, you, how do your parents feel now? I'm just kind of curious. They're, they're coming. Coming they're, around? They're coming around. <laughs> yeah. They, I mean, there was in 20... 19 i was on kelly clarkson's talk show and i think that was a big moment for them and mm -hmm. 2020 i was on the today show and i think my mom loves hoda and jenna and so seeing me be interviewed by them for their show i think signaled to her like okay he's at a certain level of success now and their biggest fear was just the monetary aspect and then the timeline of well he's not married with a house like all of his friends are and those things are just falling into place on a different timeline and with my speaking career the first time that I was able to charge ten thousand dollars for an hour-long talk I think they were like oh okay maybe there's something here and then the second time and the third time 
And then they start to believe, okay, but they're still skeptical because I'll tell my dad, I'll be like, Hey dad, some of these speakers are, it's not even about the money, but to translate it into his idea of success. Like some of these speakers are making over a million dollars a year speaking. And he's like, yeah, but then what? what happens after three years when they can't speak in it? Well, like, it's, okay, it's almost okay. like that, uh, you know, that we that same mentality of where's the finish. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's almost like so ingrained in people's way of thinking across the board. And to, to an extent, I, I, I kind of get it, especially as parents. It's like, I guess as a parent, you want success for your child, but I guess that definition of success might, that they're using to look at your life might be what their parents projected onto them. You know what I mean? I, I don't know exactly, but there could be lots of layers to this stuff. But maybe how, how would you define success for you in your life? Success in my life is spending as much time as possible with the people that I care about. So I don't, I always say there's nothing, there's not much else that I care about other than that, because I've met too many people through my project who've lost their parents, who've lost siblings who've lost kids. And it's like at the end of the day, until you go through that experience, you really don't wake up to it. I've just confronted it enough through other people's stories that it's helped me realize the importance of it. And not having money for so long, I couldn't place value in material things because I literally didn't have the money to do so. So the idea of having like a really fancy car is irrelevant to me or having a big Mm -hmm. house is irrelevant. I could care less about designer brands or anything like that my happiness is driven by the fact that I can go enjoy a park at 1 p.m on a Tuesday afternoon because I have the freedom to do so with my path or that I can go to a new place and sit in like a new conference room it's just a new conference room but this is a piece of the world that was unexplored for me until today and that adventure is always driving me so spending time with the people I care about and then having that sense of adventure and Uh, The logical side of me will say, okay, well, money does matter to an extent. So I want to have enough when it comes to money. I don't need to live in excess. I think the idea of people pursuing becoming billionaires is really funny to me because I've met people through my project who are like, I want to be a billionaire. And it's like, why? Because I want to make a difference. I want to help touch a million lives. And I'm like, that's a really inconvenient path of how to touch a million lives is to first become a billionaire. And then it's... You could do it right now. You know, yeah, what, I mean? like, like, what are you doing for the person next to you yeah. right now? Because it's not, it's a snowball effect. You impact the people close to you and then you expand that impact a little and then you expand it a little bit more when you have more resources. And then eventually the ball gets rolling down the hill, but it's not, I make a billion dollars and I can fly to wherever I want. And oh, by the way, I help all these people. So yeah, it's mm. changed a little bit for me. But when I studied finance, I was like, I'm going to do consulting or investment banking. I'm going to make as much money as quickly as possible. And I just had a mindset shift because of the way that my path has gone. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, maybe that's something that everyone should do more is just kind of uh, resonate on why they're doing something to begin with. Because I think that focus can sometimes shift. Like you're saying with the example about the billionaire, it's like, well, maybe initially it's like, oh, I want to help people. Here's a way to do it. So I'll go here and then I'll go here. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, maybe there's a better way to go a small step here and you can just go there <laughs> as opposed to having these detours or um, or maybe there's a shift of what they value then kind of strays and like, well, I'm no longer focused on helping about more just focused on the money-making aspect of it, which 
you know, it, it, it is what it is. It's not inherently, you need money to do things. I 100% get that. Um, but for, for you specifically, I mean, there's also a, a certain component of this that has to be run like a business or has to be for making money so you can continue what you're doing. Um, so maybe talk about that side of this of this thing for a second and maybe just like, um, I don't know, maybe if it seems like there was a, a really good guy, I, I read his book and listened to him speak one time called a, a name Ramit Sadie. I don't know if you know Ramit. Um, he speaks a lot on you know personal finance stuff and he always says, is like, well, find out what you care about and spend lavishly in those areas in areas that you don't care about, then cut mercilessly on those things. And so what, what are those things for you that, that you see yourself, you know, as you grow this, um, this movement and as well into your future, it's like, if you value experiences and with people and all that stuff, how do you envision that going from a monetary standpoint? Yeah. And I love his book. I will teach you to be yeah, rich. I yeah, read it great book. as well. I have a Roth IRA as a result of it. I called <laughs> my credit card company and was like, what benefits do you have for me? <laughs> they gave me 2% cash back for the year. So nice. I, I, I love, and I love his disciplined approach to it because he's like, here's what it is. Follow the formula and you'll be okay. Mm. <clears throat> but yeah, my whole, the business thing. So when I started at Deloitte, I was making $72,500 straight out of school, which was a great salary. And I had a $10,000 bonus coming out of school. So I was doing fine from a financial standpoint. And then I had to pay $5,000 to quit, to go take a pay cut, to go to the startup. Cause I quit before 10, two years had hit and if you quit before two years you had to pay back half the bonus if you quit before one year you'd have to pay back all of it but i was there for a year and three months and then i went to the tech startup and i was making 50 grand base and whatever the commission was which i have no idea it was always it was like the wild west it would change every quarter but probably close to 70 grand so i worked for three years and then i was laid off and then i went into this full time and a big thing for me was no surprise. My relationships came through in a big way. My friend from Penn State invited me to live with him in Los Angeles. So <clears throat> my lease ended May of 2017. I drove across the country with my brother's car because my brother had moved to New York, ended up in LA. I lived there for the summer of 2017. Then I moved back with my parents for five months, went back to LA for nine months in 2018, back with my parents for four months, back to LA for three months in 2019 back home with my parents for two months. And then I moved in with another friend and his wife in Hoboken, New Jersey for nine months. So from May of 20, and then I went back to my parents for the pandemic and then moved back into Philly, January of 22. So from May of 2017 until January of 22, I had no rent payments and I wasn't making enough money to get healthcare. So I just got whatever the government healthcare was. And I always joke, it was the don't get sick plan. So right. just don't go to the doctors, which is a terrible thing. But I was doing that. And then as my following was growing on Instagram, and this was my initial plan to support myself was I'll take on partnerships like any probably teen today who thinks they're going to get big on social media and then just charge a bunch of money. But I thought I would take on partnerships. And in March of 2017, I did a partnership with Fishtown Pharmacy, which is a pharmacy in Philly. Mm. And he gave me $300 and I tagged him in every post for the month of March and was just like presented this month by Fishtown Pharmacy. And then because of that, an urgent care center, Vibe Urgent Care reached out to me. He became part of my project. He cut me a check for $1,000 for the next month. And then team dental dentist office where the dentist was part of my project was like, why didn't you tell me I would partner with you? And then he cut me a check. And then leadership Philadelphia. So it was just random mix of people who were part of my project who had their own businesses were then supporting me 
in small ways. And it was as much of a donation as it was a partnership. But then I went out to LA and it was a t-shirt company. And then I came back to Philly and it was a dog walking company and it was a wedding band company and a publication, just the most random mix, but it's a testament to the power of the network. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, I was on Ryan Seacrest's radio show. And that was the first, a truly big press that I had for my project. So with my sales background, I took that audio and I sent it to the head of partnerships at WeWork. And I said, hey, a lot of people from your community have been part of my project. Your values are community and entrepreneurship. I'm doing something very similar. So we did a month partnership where I promoted them for free to see if I was cool enough to work with. And then that went well. So then we did a three-month partnership and then that turned into a nine-month partnership. And that ended March 11th of 2020. And then I went into, in August of 2019, I met a girl, Michelle Poehler, who at the time was charging, she was three years into her speaking journey. She was charging $17,000 per speech. And she said she was speaking 70 times that year. And I was like, that's a lot of money. Like two of your speeches is more than all the money I've made in my entire project in the last five years. So that seems like a good route. And then with COVID, I started having online seminars where I would throw a Zoom link up on a Sunday. I'd be like, I'm going to do a Zoom call this Sunday from 1 to 2.30. And I would invite followers to be part of it. They would show up. I'd teach them how I got to know people. I would connect them with each other on the call. And afterwards, I would ask for a donation of what they felt the value was. And I made like $1,000 in a month doing that. And I also, more importantly, got feedback. And then I put out Instagram stories that summer and said, hey, I'm trying to land 10 speaking gigs by this August. Would you introduce me to your school or your company? And then I got introduced to Pepperdine University. I got introduced to Auburn University. I did a gig with Amazon, like one of their DEI teams. And it just the people who were part of my project opened these doors for me months and years after I had met them. And because I had the feedback, it kind of helped me. And I had Kelly Clarkson at that point get in the door. And then the more I started to speak, I signed to a higher education agency. And he was like, well, you should be charging four to $10,000 because you have the media, you have this story. So then I believed in myself to up my rate a little bit. And then I started doing more corporate things and telling people my rate was $10,000. And sometimes they accepted that and sometimes they didn't, but it was just a journey from there. And if you think about, it's kind of a business thing, but what are the things that I enjoy spending lavishly on? It's like the success of my project because I've made now over six figures in the last two years from speaking and I've put almost $20,000 of that right back into speaking. So I still feel like I can't afford to pay rent a few months from now, mm -hmm. but I've been telling people it's like I'm buying my monopoly properties. I'm setting myself up so that when people land on my website in the future that I get to collect rent, you know, and I get to go then build up further in the future. So I feel like I'm in this really interesting space right now where I'm supremely confident about my financial security in the future. And I'm nervous about it in the near term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I think uh, that seems to be maybe the the MO of an entrepreneur. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the idea of, of network has always really intrigued me. And I think there's a couple ways to go about it. I think you have, um, I've been a part of networking groups. Some have been excellent. I've been a part of some where it's they seem like super, super strict, where they're trying to extract the end result of referrals or whatever the case is 
without really even providing value or a place of openness for genuine connection to happen. You know what I mean? Like the whole premise of it is just, let's get to this. You know what I mean? But then I've, I've, I'm part of this one group and it's very, I've met so many people through it and it's so cordial. It's so laid back. There's no pressure for anything. And because of that, it seems to just work better. You start meeting people, you find people with more commonalities. There's no pressure to do anything. And in doing so, it seems a little, a little more, um, I don't know. It, it seems to like grease the wheels as far as it's concerned. But the idea of network has always fascinated me. Even going back to when I finished up up college, it was like, I have, I know all these people. I've met all these people throughout college. Um, and I never really knew what they did. You know what I mean? From like a, a work standpoint, I kind of knew, I knew what classes they were in, but now we've graduated and I kind of know what they do. And I think they kind of know what everyone does, but you can only get so far by kind of knowing what people do. Mm -hmm. And so I, part of the reason why I wanted to do this was kind of twofold, was to talk to people intimately about their business or, or projects they were working on. So then I could go forward and connect them or plug them into things in the future. Mm -hmm. And even for my friends in, in college or um, high school, whatever it was, it's like, well, what are they doing? So that if I even meet somebody at a, a store, it's like, oh, you do this. I know somebody and I could connect those people. But it's almost like, I don't know. I don't want to speak uh, at a turn, but it's almost like I think a lot of people don't, they're so focused on um, their own stuff and rightfully so. It's, it's their their stuff. And it's like, I, I am too. But it's like by slightly opening up, understanding the needs and the, um, I don't know, what, what people are doing around you, you can plug and play better as far as just strengthening the community and the network. Um, but that's kind of my two cents on, on network and kind of part of the reason why I thought conversations like this were so valuable, just two people sitting down, having a conversation. Why? Because it's good for us to do this. It's good for the, the greater community, the people that both of us know. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I think the, the reason why people don't initially is because there's nothing substantial they can see. It's like, well, I don't really see how this is working you know, for your first five years. You aren't really making much money there, but it's like, well, that's the mindset of most people. I don't see how this is benefiting me or somebody else immediately, mm -hmm. but a lot of great things start like that. They kind of start with this kind of quasi, I don't really know what's happening, but let's do it anyway. Cause I think it's for the sake of what's good. Yeah. And I, I'll say too, like thinking about the first five years and I don't see how this is working financially. I was still seeing a ton of value in terms of, I see the gratitude that I have for my life. Now I see the sense of belonging that I feel to Philadelphia and Los Angeles and Hoboken and elsewhere. And I see the knowledge that I never would have had had I not started this project. So I think there's understanding that there's more value than just money in our life. And still too, with the, it's fun to work so, towards something that you're passionate about. Like I always thought of that with my project. If I, if, if I were to never achieve success in the traditional terms, at least I spent a ton of time doing something that I really enjoyed. Mm. And that's what my dad, um, what, he made a comment recently where we were talking about 
like how with speaking, I'm getting back up to the level of my friends and their salaries and stuff. And he's like, yeah, but they have all these like seven years of working and making money that you have to catch up on. And it's such an interesting, it's so money perception, right? Because I was like, well, I have seven years of living my life in the exact way that I want to, that they have to catch up on. And will they ever get to that ability to do that if they don't retire, if they don't maybe find the job that they love? So it's an interesting perception of value. But with networks too, I am not a part of networking groups or anything like that. And I have this massive network and it, it's extended in all these different directions. And I think the key for me is I made it a routine part of my life. And I think that's what I want to encourage people to do. And you can certainly use a networking group to do that. But I always say like people will make a goal to go to the gym three days a week, or they'll make a goal to read 12 books in a year. But you rarely see people being like, I want to meet 12 new people this year for an hour each. And if you do 12 and then over 60, 60 or five years, that's 60 people. And those people probably introduced you and you're probably meeting more than 12 people. And you're probably going in to directions that you discover stuff. There's a great, I wouldn't be surprised if you have already read it, but a, a book called A Curious Mind by Brian Grazer. I've heard of it. I haven't read it yet. Okay. But... It's a good book. Every two weeks throughout his career, he's had a curiosity conversation with someone outside of the film industry who inspires him. And like, he's seen that to be a valuable practice that adds to the way he produces film, but it also adds fulfillment to his life. So I think it's wild that people aren't more intentional about connection in general. And a networking group is great because then you can be like, well, I have this group of people that are already up for connection. So let me just pluck one person from there a month or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Instead of going to like the meeting and being like, what's going to come of this networking meeting tonight? Yeah. It's almost like people, the, the mindset of people going from like the start to finish. It's like, well, what's, what's the finish? Why can't I get there already? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, I don't know if that's the point you know, that old cliche, which I kind of, you know, wince at once in a while, but the whole, the journey is that, you know, it, it's, it has some truth, a lot of truth to it. And it's like, well, why are we so focused on the end? Why aren't we focused on some of the things we're doing now? And to your point about like personal connection, it's like, if that is the key to a lot of things, both if at the end of the day, like for you personally, so you, you mentioned that you want to spend your time with people you care about. And it's like, if that's the goal and why aren't we just kind of practicing that, if you will, on a day-to-day -day basis and, and doing that and just connecting. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's one of the things that's going to benefit you more anyway, even from a, a business perspective, from a relationship perspective, just by having those connections, it's going to benefit you. But everyone wants to either, what's the end goal? Oh, uh, you know, gently nudge 12,000 people with a mailer or something. And it's like, well, okay, that, that can work and it has validity, but I can also do that on a much, much more grassroots level. Um, I don't know. It just seems so common sense that I don't know why it's not pushed more or, you know, I don't know, you know? Yeah. If, I mean, it fascinates me. I think I always equate it to going to the gym too. We know that going to the gym is good for us. We know that it gives us endorphins. It makes us healthier. We're more active and able to do things but it's so hard for people to get up off the couch and instead of watching succession, go to the gym, right? They're like, why? We know it's good for, and same with connection. There's a study, the Harvard study of adult development did this 85 year study with over 2000 participants. And the number one takeaway was that the biggest contributor to your long-term health and happiness is your personal relationships. 
and your ability to cultivate warm relationships of all different kinds mm. but people won't do it so there's i mean there's so many things like that and mm. like gratitude is really good for you to think of three things you're grateful for people won't do it mm. so that fascinates me the fact that there's all this good stuff that we can do that we choose not to do because comfort in one way or another gets in the way um what about the the concept of asking and I, i'm asking this because um it seems like there's a certain point even when you mentioned you know um that woman who was doing her speeches what she was charging for certain things and she meant or and you like, hey this is what i should maybe be, be charging but even like the it's like a two-part thing where you know you, you're doing these speaking gigs but there's also the part of actually just asking for something or even asking for a donation on something um what's your philosophy on asking and kind of taking that step to ask for something whether that's something in a business deal something in a in a relationship my general perception is people tend to be very shy or they don't want to because they think they're putting other people out in a certain degree when my experience has also been that people are usually more than willing to help in certain instances so um maybe speak to that for a second yeah i think there's a nuance to it I think asking is a really good thing, especially when you believe in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But it's, yeah, I also think like if I just met someone and I was like, hey, I really speak, can you just introduce me to your network? And then it's very self-serving mm. in a way. I think you, bef maybe not before, but it, well, before asking, I think you should think about how you're providing value and how you can provide value to maybe that person or mm -hmm. the greater good. Then they can see that it's not like, I'm helping you build up to get a fancy car someday. Right. I'm helping society or something like that. But I also met a woman who told me that you never know where the help is going to come from. And I've seen that to be so true through my project. And like when I asked, hey, can you anyone out there introduce me to your schools or whatever? People that I didn't even know, like a follower of mine made introductions for me. She's been responsible for almost like 12 grand of the revenue that I have for speaking. And she's just a follower of mine who had no, hmm. no, there was no, like, I, she didn't owe me anything. She just out of the kindness of her heart was like, I'll talk to this person and talk to this person. So you don't know where the help is going to come from. And yeah, I think I, that's just what, what I think about is it. like, ask but with the nuance of how does this provide value for people other than yourself hmm. yeah i think that's right i think the the concept of value or even before asking it's like making sure that what you're doing even if you're giving it away for for free in some instances it's like how am i providing value to somebody hmm. um there's a i never read the book but i heard some of the general overview if you're familiar with Gary Vee at all, like some of his jab, jab, right hook. Yeah. It's kind of like this give, provide value, provide value. And then you have the, the right hook, which is like the permission to ask in return. So I think that philosophy is is super true. And so it's, even if you know, from a business standpoint, you're working with X, Y, and Z people, that's your prime clientele. How can you provide value to these people? Mm -hmm. Maybe on multiple different layers or a few different times. And now you kind of are in this position where, um, again, like you're saying, there is nuance to it where it's like you can't, because you're putting the value out there, you can't now expect them in return to say like, okay, fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you or whatever. It's like, it's kind of has to be freely given. And I think that's, that's part of the thing about like some of this 
what you want to call it giftology or whatever in this space is when you do give to two people. Um, I think many times people try to think of it as like a, a monetary transaction, like, oh, I gifted you this. So you gift me something, but then that inherently undermines what a, what a gift is. It's mm-hmm. like, it's freely given. Um, so if we can do that though, if we can do that with businesses around us, Hey, I'll, I, I'm doing this for you. Nothing. I don't expect anything for it, but now in the future, I can kind of ask for something back and not feel like, and already know, I guess in the back of my mind, I know I'm providing value here. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's worked really well for me in in that specific situation is a lot of the time, like if I'm asking people, I've, I've met them for an hour and I've freely shared their story to my audience, which mm. I'm happy to do. Like I expect nothing from them. I get a lot of joy out of just spending the time together, but then they are like invested in a way and it's like, they want to help me or with the people who follow me, I've entertained them in a way of sharing people's stories. And for me, the ask is more like, hey, can you introduce me so I can continue to do this, to bring you more stories and to give other people a voice to share who they are? Hmm. So yeah, there is a, a little bit of that, like providing, and you the same thing with your podcast. You have people on as a guest, you give them a platform to share their story. And there's nothing, it's not like, okay, and then after this, I'm going to send you my MLM thing to get involved with. Yeah. It's, yeah, I think, it's really interesting. And I've also, I've been, I've asked people things and have been left on red and that's part of it too. Mm. And I think it, I've realized people will perceive you as valuable in one way or another. And if they don't perceive your value at that time, maybe they won't answer you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't want to work with you someday or, or give you something in the future. A lot of times you just have to be willing to do all of the work that it's going to take yourself and show to people like, hey, if you whether you help me or not, I'm still going to get there. I'm just asking for your help in this specific moment, maybe as an assist. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I feel that. Um, I think maybe there's some hesitation on people's end if they am I actually providing value? You know what I mean? Like even in business, sometimes people, um, it's like in the entrepreneurship world, it's like people have a project they're working on, which is why it's so important to kind of put it out there to make sure it's actually providing value to people who who want to use it. Because we have to pivot early on to be like, hey, actually, I got to go this way because people aren't finding value in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, maybe let's digress for a second and jump sure. into this. What, what do you think of this? I mean, you, I'm sure you had it before. but Yeah, yeah. Um, Bell's too hearted. Yeah. I, I try, honestly, I, I went to, um, you ever been to the foodery? I've heard of it. So there's there's one in Philly. There's one in like Maniunk and there's one out in, uh, in like Phoenixville area. But they had like a really good selection of beer. Mm-hmm. So I went there thinking I was going to just easily pick up a couple of yards. They didn't have it. So <laughs> so we're left with this. And this I, is good. This and is I, good. I, I also have this guy, which is an oldie but a goodie, which you, you can pop next. But oh, you, cool. you ever had this one? I do love Flower Power. It, 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 it's, it's Honestly, I haven't had this in probably like four or five years. Okay. But uh, I love it too. It's got a nice, a nice kick to it. Yeah. I went to a beer fest in Philly years ago. And Flower Power was there. And that was like one of the beers that my brother and I thought we have to get this afterwards. Yeah. So are, are you a big uh, beer guy? Yeah, I like it. I'm, I like all craft beers. I like exploring different styles of beer. It's, I'm not going like, I think I used to be more into it. I don't drink as much as I used to, but sure. I do like the, the different styles of it and explore because I feel like I don't know if you feel the same way. I think every evolution of of someone who has turned 21 within the past 10 years was like, I'm drinking Natty, Natty Lights or Miller Lite or whatever. <laughs> and then boom, IPAs. Like I'm doing IPAs. And uh, 
I, I went from there into like stouts and porters and then mm. hefeweizens and I started to be like, well, I'll, I'll drink hefeweizens in the spring, in the summer, because it feels that way to me, or mm. I'll drink the porters in the winter because it feels heavier. So yeah, I think I think that's the natural progression. I think it's kind of this, you know, uh, college beer drinking person who anything and everything, and it kind of goes to this more, you know, nuanced approach where, oh, I'm now in the IPA category. And then, but it's funny, my, my, my wife kind of came in the, I, I call it, she came in the back door, meaning like she, you know, probably drank beer in college, but then she almost, when I met her, she only drank exclusively wine. Okay. That was it. And, uh, and now she likes beer, but uh, she went, for the the twelve percent barrel aged stouts and the and the you know the eight percent uh, uh, barrel aged sour, so you know that's <laughs> came in strong. Yeah, it came, yeah. came in very strong. Um, yeah. But for you, what, what's your favorite style? Do you, you an IPA guy for the most part, or I do love IPAs. I think I like the bitterness mm. of it. Like the the more bitter a beer, the better I like it. And then I think stouts are probably after that. Like the thank you the Oh, like Guinness, for example, my friends and I've gotten into, and I actually, again, I, I don't drink as much as I used to coming from Penn state. I feel like I got it all out of my system in my college right. days. And, but I, I like drinking beers now that have a lower alcohol mm. percentage. Cause it's like, I can enjoy the beer and not have to worry as much about being hungover. Mm. but I like the creaminess and the richness of like a Guinness or stout or Porter in general. And like that almost, um, I don't maybe like the like oakiness of it or like I don't know I'm thinking in terms of scotch like I like the more smoky scotches mm, like the peatiness like the um yeah like that as opposed to the sweetness mm. so with the beer the same way when it's almost whatever the equivalent of smoky would be a you ever had a um a Roush beer I don't think so so that's literally a, like a smoked beer Oh really? Yeah. Some of them are we, we I mean so I background to me. I've homebrewed for like 12 years. And so I actually work uh, at a brewery over in Jersey um kind of as an advocation like I'll brew there sometimes and nice. you know. Um but that's I I over the past however many years I've just loved kind of seeing how this whole scene has evolved and it, it's at a really interesting juncture right now. I mean there's it just seems that everywhere you look, there's another one, you know what I mean? Another brewery popping up. And I remember a time in college when it felt like I could realistically try every new craft beer that came out. I'll go to the store. Oh, I haven't tried this one yet. And now it's just, there is no way in hell I could, I could try them all. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, no complaints though. No. (laughs) There's, do you know Workhorse Brewing? Yeah. I know they have a, they're in Bridgeport, right? Yeah, or like King of Prussia. Yeah, Bridgeport's right there. Um, the owner of that was part of my project. Oh, really? I met him at that location when it was just an empty warehouse. Very cool. And he was like, I'm going to put a brewery here. And now it's there. And Evil Genius. Yeah. I met Trevor. He was part of my project years ago when I still lived in Philly. And Luke, I'm meeting this Thursday. No way. So they've been like a part of my... When I went across the country to go out to LA because I was driving out there, they gave me a case of beer to like pass out along the way. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Cause I was like, I want to give some people some type of gift and I think it'd be really cool for them to have the local Philly beer. So that's sweet. Yeah. But yeah, so that honestly to give you some more backstory, that's kind of part of the reason for um, like the name of this podcast. So leverage and beverage was kind of like the, the business side with the beverage stuff. 
like I've had on multiple breweries, multiple like distilleries, wineries, and just like the whole beverage space. But it was always about that concept of talking about, um, you know, a subject I care about, which is like the whole business community type uh, vibe. And then the having over a drink, just like a nice relaxed atmosphere, just kind of, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like after hour, it's like, it's like a happy hour. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That kind of feel. Um, but it's also been interesting to see. It's like, well, what do people like? Why do they like it? Like you mentioning the bitterness, like that's, that's cool to me. Like I, I, I'm kind of the same way. I, I like really robust flavors. Mm-hmm. And so even like all these newer, um, new England or style IPAs are a little more, you know, fruit forward, less bitterness. Mm-hmm. I like that sometimes, but sometimes I really just like a nice West coast IPA that really smacks you around a little bit. You know yeah, I, mean? I like that. It's, I like, so yards IPA, which the story behind that, <clears throat> I love anything Philly cause I'm from Narstown and I remember, I don't know if it was Preston and Steve or just the radio in general. Yeah. I love Preston. Steve. Yeah. And they were like, what is the best Philly beer? Mm-hmm. And obviously Yingling is the oldest like Philly ish, right? Right. But up there. And, they, I think the finals were like yingling and yards and I had never had yards before. And then after I heard of it through that, I tried it because I was like, I like yards. And the, I used to live in Northern Liberties when I started the project. So I was not far from where their old space was. Mm. And actually their new space would have been right down the street from me, which is a shame that I'd moved away from it. But yeah, like their IPA is so good to me. I also like Victory's Hop Devil and Trogue's Perpetual IPA. Mm. I actually, I almost grabbed Trogue's oh, Perpetual. Really? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're like the, the holy trinity of, of IPAs <laughs> for me from the local area. Yeah, but yeah, but I I also love Yingling, and I always say if I had to drink one beer, if I could only drink one beer for the rest of my life, it's gonna be Yingling. Well, it's funny. Who did I hear this from? Um, maybe it was somebody up north where like Maine or Vermont. Mm. It's like they used to have their parents like send them like cases of yingling up there. Mm. And everyone like liked it. Everyone loved it. They're like, oh, what is this? You know what I mean? Like what why don't we have this here? Um you ever been to the brewery, Yingling? Yeah, my family and I went uh years ago. And it was cool. I think like the story behind Yingling is so cool. And then they take you into that cave and show you where they were <laughs> yeah. brewing beer during prohibition and Yeah the tale of delivering the case the day prohibition was lifted as if to say we've been brewing this entire time. <laughs> yeah and then the um uh the name like yingling it was always fascinating to me how uh one of the facts they said was that, uh the owner has had all daughters and so but then like their husbands they all changed their last names to Yingling. Oh, no way. And I was like whoa <laughs> like that's that's pretty heavy you know what I mean yeah like, that, that's pretty wild uh, but I guess, you know, with a name like Yingling, it's like, how could you, how could you not? You yeah, why wouldn't you? Um, but, um, but yeah, one of my favorite things is, is brewery tours. I love brewery tours. Like I, I'm from Jersey, so they actually made a requirement. You have to have a brewery tour, but it was kind of watered down in that, like, you could just like show a video and I was like, oh, this is your tour. And everyone was like, kind of like understood. It was kind of like an eye roll thing. You know what I mean? But for me, I always love just like going in the back, asking questions, seeing what their process was. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. There's something about, um, I don't know the tangibility of being able to, to go places and talk to people, um, that in a, as convenient as, you know, zoom and stuff is 
is never going to replicate what it's like. So even when we were setting this up, we were like going back and forth between like a Zoom mm-hmm. or in person. I was like, yeah, I'd rather, you know, push yeah. it off to in person. I think it's just mm-hmm. it's just better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um it's kind of cool too, like the the brewery tour gives you an appreciation for the final product that you have in your hands. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I enjoy hearing people's stories so much. Like when I spend an hour with them, that's like my brewery tour of who this person is. It's mm, a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. I like that. So where, where are you at now? Are you, you you in Philly? I live in Fairmount. Oh, nice. Oh, I would. Yeah, my um, my wife used to live there. Oh, what what streets? Uh, Spring Garden, like right by. Uh, oh yeah, I'm right near there. Like right down from the art museum. Okay. Yeah. I'm um. Right near, there used to be a place called St. Saint Steve, Stephen's Green. Mm-hmm. Well, they're having some technical difficulties. That was like the one thing I should have done. But... I think we're good now. Okay. okay. Don't touch, don't touch. That's wild, man. I don't know what's going on, man. Yeah. You gotta get that, that mic's been uh, bugging out. That was a quick fix, though. It was. <laughs> um, yeah. So I live near that restaurant. It's a cool area. I like it. And especially being from Narstown, it's easy to get home mm. to hop right on 76. You ever been in, um, uh, been to Monks? I have, I want to say no, but I, I'm sure that I've met someone there at least once in my project. Oh yeah. If you, you got to go, it's, it's like probably it's my favorite beer bar in Philadelphia. Okay. Honestly, probably anywhere. Mm, nice. But they have like, I don't know how familiar you are with like tons of like different beers, but like the, um, like Hill Farmstead or, um, like the alchemist, like Hedy Topper stuff. Oh, like that. Yeah, yeah. We'll have that stuff on tap from time to time. Nice. Just like, but it's really good. Like Belgian, uh, restaurants. So they'll have like mussels, and like um palm frites if you're you know into that oh, yeah. kind of stuff yeah. but i like that um so how about, how about you what else do you like to do for for fun when you're not doing <laughs> this project i enjoy music like going to concerts and whatnot i'm going to Lollapalooza. oh nice this summer with friends from college i live a few doors down from one of my good friends and his wife and we were all tour guides together at penn state so we'll play a lot of settlers of Catan together Mm-hmm. have you ever played oh yeah okay yeah great. i love Catan. like actually my, my brother introduced me to the game like like last year and i never played before okay and it's awesome yeah it's great so and the fun thing is we all are always down to play <laughs> so we all have like <laughs> so this... it's kind of dangerous <laughs> yeah it's just like they'll hit me up on a tuesday night and be like yo do you want to come over and get a game in and like, yeah <laughs> i do so i play i spend a lot of time with them I try to go to the gym three days a week. I belong to Planet Fitness in the area. I, what else? Yeah, music. I have two guitars. It's been a while since I've like practiced, but I'll, I'll pick it up and play every once in a while. Family and friends is really big. And reading, I try to read like an hour before bed every night. I'm on my ninth book this year. I read 20 books last year. It's the book I'm currently reading is called A Gentleman in Moscow. Hmm which was just something I Googled like good books, found it in the library. So I live not far from the Parkway Central Library. So I get all my books from the library. And then all Philly sports. Like I try to watch, I live alone. So the Phillies are my friends. Like they're the people that I have in the background at night. And I'll 
I'll usually have them on and and just mute it and then I'll read on my couch and like check the score every once in a while. So yeah, I live a very simple life, but Philly sports, fitness, reading, music, friends and family. It's kind of it. Yeah, I think I think simplicity is something that's kind of um um I don't know, overlooked sometimes. People mm-hmm. don't realize how important it is. Just the like the the ability to have like mental clarity about certain things, keeping things kind of netted out of what do I actually care about and how do I maximize those things in my life? Um, like even the, some of the reading stuff, I, I love reading. I, this past year has been kind of wild. So it's kind of gotten, you know, off track, but like um, that's been a goal of mine, at least to try to, I, I had a, a goal a couple of years back. It was to do a, um, a book a week. We got, it got pretty aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I, I think I ended up at like 35 for the year, mm. but like it was, it was like, um, I don't know. It, it became, it was like, that's that balance act between you know, something being like too, um, you know, too forced where it was like, I didn't. You I, lost I, the joy for it. Yeah. It's like, I was, I'm, I was doing this because I had to hit the goal, not because I enjoyed the process of doing it, you know? There's, I want to hear what else you're interested in, but there's a book, the last book I read tying back to when you were talking about the podcast is somewhat of a way for you to get to know people better so you can be a better connector. Mm. There's a book called Two Hour Cocktail Party by mm. Nick Gray. Have you ever mm. heard of it? No. So Nick Gray started a company called Museum Hack where he would have, and this is just told to me from other people, apparently he had actors giving tours of museums like the MoMA. So instead of it being like this uptight type of thing, it was like all of a sudden fun and lively and Somehow he sold this business for millions of dollars and then he enjoyed hosting cocktail parties. So he wrote this book, Two Hour Cocktail Party. And it's basically a book on how to host a party for two hours of 15 people and a way to cross pollinate your networks and expand your network. And he says like, he'll meet someone interesting out at a party or he'll meet like a potential new business contact and he'll be like, oh, come to my cocktail party. I'm hosting it this night or whatever. And he gives the formula of like, here's the name tags you should get here's how you start the first 10 minutes here's the icebreakers that you do here's the schedule of messages you send out before the party like start with five core friends and build it but it would be cool for you to read because if you have like all these people now yeah and i've thought about it with my project like i could host a party with just people in the fairmount neighborhood that i know but don't know each other Hmm. and that'd be a cool way to provide value for them of hey here's other people in the neighborhood and then all of a sudden, if you're hosting cocktail parties, then it's like, how do you get invited to Greg's cocktail party? Like right. you become this. It's like this like like exclusivity kind of thing, but not, you know what I mean? It's kind of yeah, like, this, it's just like, like a, a a way of, yeah, offering connection hmm. to people. But I really like that. That's, uh, I don't know. It seems to be, I feel like parties, especially just like get together, used to be so formal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm having this thing, but invitations would go out like i'm talking back like who knows like early 1900s or whatever but now it's like everything is like almost so casual that there's no like formality to it yeah um like even when you have a get together it's like and, and there, there's it's, it's nice to have stuff like that too kind of go with the flow stuff but there's also i think there's also value in having things that are like properly planned and executed uh but that's really interesting i really like that a lot i think it and I think to your point, I think it would dovetail well. Cause honestly, with this um um podcast, part of what I was trying to do is also have 
um, you know, events for people. So it would be this this thing where, hey, had all these people come on, let's all get together in person and then kind of solidify some of these relationships. Or if you've been listening, here's a way to kind of connect to those people who you've heard already about their about their business. But um, I don't know. It's a uh, I, I really like that. That's who's who's the guy? Gray? You said it was his name? Nick Gray. Nick G R A Y. No, I like that a lot. Um, cool. So, uh, what's uh, what's your plans for the summer? Anything in particular you got going on besides more more conversations? More conversations going to the Lollapalooza, which is in August. It's like August third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Luckily, I have a speaking gig in Wisconsin on the third. Oh, nice! So it will like I'm basically going. It's I have to fly into Chicago for it either way. So I'm going to go up, speak that Thursday, come back, and then do the festival Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'll miss the first day of it, but it'll be cool. And then I have a friend getting married in September, but that's pretty much it. I mean, my main focus is just get to a point where I'm having gigs on the calendar for this fall and for next year Hmm. it's like the only not the only thing that i'm interested in but i mean that in the conversation the conversations are already sustainable so i'm really interested in getting the speaking up and running because i think like i mentioned in, in the near term there's still that worry about the finances so I'm not thinking about what restaurants I'm going to go out to because I'm not going to go to them. I'm not thinking about what I'm going to spend. Like if I'm going to go spend a weekend at the shore, cause I'm, I can't afford to do that. So okay. I'm like, let me get piece one in place. And then that probably opens everything up for next summer or whatever. Sure. But there's, I've been really busy with that stuff and having a bunch of calls with the people who've helped me build my website and get my demo reel together and, there's so many chess pieces that you have to move to to get the speaking in order. And I, I'm enjoying moving those pieces and then seeing it start to play out. Hmm. Yeah, it, it is it is work though. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes I kind of had this impression of even when starting a podcast, it was going to be more like all that stuff kind of just happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I record and then it's automatically done. And, you know, but there's like the, on the back end, having someone produce it and then having the, um, you know, make sure the sounds fine or it sounds good. And then, uh, you know, kind of trying to promote it in certain ways or, or whatever the case is. Um, but you know, th- things always take longer than you think they're going to take, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or consume, consume more resource then. Oh, for sure. We're always naive. Right. Yeah. And I certainly was with my project. I was curious with you because I think for me, one of the things I've enjoyed about my, so obviously speaking, there's a, everyone and their mother could be a speaker, but my project has, has been unique in this sense of it's always kind of cut through the noise. Cause there's no one else trying to my knowledge, meet 10,000 people for an hour each. And now you have like the leverage and beverage concept, mm-hmm. but what inspired you and what drives you to take on this industry where like podcasting has just exploded as well to be like, let me carve my little space out in this massive. Sure. I think in a, in a world where I think a lot of people are kind of jumping on the train of doing podcasting or whatever, I think a lot of people do it because they see it as a way to um, just like the next social or media outlet they should be plugging into. Oh, it was like social media. Now it's like, oh, podcasting is like the way to go. Um, 
And so I, I, from, for me, there was inklings of that, but it was more like I did it because I listened to so much audio and I saw it as an extremely valuable way to consume valuable information. So, um, like even on one of the earlier podcasts, I had a talk with a guy and we were talking, we got off on this tangent about, you know, college education and stuff. And like, well, is the value really there anymore as far as what we're paying, what we're getting back? And I was like, there are so many podcasts now with like professor level people. It's like, and they're all free. Mm. It's like, so there's such a, a, a mass of information here and you can consume it, whether you're driving, cooking, whatever. It's such a good way to learn. So for me, that was kind of like building block number one is I just love the format. And so I don't really do much other social related stuff for this. I have an Instagram, but it's kind of just there. It's like a, you know, a, a website type thing. Um, but for me, it was always the audio side is such a good way to receive content. Mm. And while people are also just doing it, I think because it's like, oh, it's a good way to, you know, whatever. And of course you, you want that, you want to reach people and do that. But uh, for me, it was always about the stories behind like businesses and people who are starting movements, how they started, the hardships they've kind of went through, how they got to where they are. Um, because I work with businesses most of the day. And so do, in doing that, I just had developed this immense respect for small business owners. So people who, you know, not aren't these massive corporations, um, but these people who just kind of ran their business, did what they had to do. And it's, it's not like an, an easy thing to do to, to start a business. It is and isn't. Like it might be easy on, okay, I have my entity set up and we're, we're doing it. But the the pivoting, the constant transition from the initial idea, oh, this isn't working. How do we, it's this basically businesses were set out to solve a problem that a consumer has. And then internally at that business every day, they're just solving problems. So it's like this constant problem solving wheel and, uh, it can get tiring, but it's also kind of like this, this chess game, like you're alluding to of moving the pieces down strategically to make things work, to uh, find out what the end consumer wants, we can serve them better. And so for me, it's kind of just like a way of storytelling um, with those business owners about their business and kind of teasing out some of the things that they find um, valuable. And then some of the hardship they went through. So people who are listening from an education standpoint or, just pure enjoyment can kind of understand, okay, maybe I can do this, but if I was to do my thing, how would I do this? So I wouldn't make those same mistakes. Um, and then again, it's also just like kind of on the networking portion. It's a great way just to, to plug into people. And then also for me, just be able to connect people. If I can, you know, help X, Y, and Z business owner and um, they can, you know, they know someone who can help in what we're doing. It's an awesome, it's an awesome fit. So that's kind of the the thing behind me. So that's kind of why I've tried to carve out a little piece here for, and I think, I think, I, I don't know about most podcasts. I think a lot of podcasts will, um, some may persist. I think others might just kind of fall by the wayside if they're not really there for a, a purpose or they're just kind of doing it as another, another outlet. But for me, I kind of have that, the storytelling piece that I really, really enjoy behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And then what's the nine to five for you? So for me, it's uh, a company called Bray Wealth Insights, and we kind of help businesses. We kind of help the ecosystem of the business owner, the business owner's kind of financial plan, and then their workforce. So how all those pieces work together. Mm -hmm. uh, the workforce side for us has been kind of one of the bigger things where, you know, you have all these employees at these companies, 
and there's things that they need or there's things that they want or the things that they want to be catered to as employees. And so really keeping business owners in the loop on what do their employees want? So we'll help to, you know, run surveys for the employer on make sure you're keeping tabs on what these employees value. Why do they value these things? Um, what are you currently providing to them? Is there a miscommunication on what you're providing, what they actually value? So that's kind of where it starts. And then on the business end, we'll do, you know, um, planning. So if a business owner is looking to exit or to pass their business on, we'll kind of help in that regard. Um, so it's really all focused on the business. We kind of work a lot with, you know, not huge corporations, again, more small businesses. So, you know, the 10, 10 to 20 employees around that area, but there's just so many good people, cool stories, um, in, in that space. And it's, it's kind of been cool to, um, you know, do this as a, a tangent to that. So, you know, we're doing some of the the work, but then we also have this, this side piece where we're just talking to businesses and really understanding how they've carved a niche for themselves and then what they're doing, what they plan on doing going forward. Um, but I don't know, the, the small business community to me has always been a, a really great place. I, yeah. I have immense respect for people in the, in the space. And I think it's, um, kind of the backbone of a lot of, you know, the country and, um, I don't know, it's just good to see. And I would like to encourage people. And if anybody else wants to, even for entrepreneurs, I love hearing things that they're doing in ways that they're pushing and exploring and trying to start movements or, or businesses. Yeah. And you, you started the company Brea Wealth Insights? Yeah, that's what we, so again, it was kind of started out as a uh, really focused on, we did a lot of individual stuff initially mm. and we still do some of that, but we're more geared towards the business end of it now mm. um, where we just try to, um, you know, play, play as that, you know, um, quarterback with the business owner to help them coordinate that whole ecosystem of their, their plan how that coordinates with the business and how their workforce, which is probably one of their larger assets, especially when you don't want to lose employees, how does that fit into the whole um, ecosystem? But it's been cool. You meet a lot, a lot of cool people, a mm -hmm. lot of interesting businesses, things I've never thought people would start businesses about, but you know, it's, it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah. And so how long have you had that business? Probably about uh, eight years now. Okay. Nice. Yeah. And then, how has being a podcaster made you a better business owner? I think it's probably along the same lines with you. It's just helped me to better understand. Um, so, you know, even when I have business owners on, I'll kind of ask them, you know, what are you struggling through? And so in having those conversations, we can kind of understand, well, you know, everyone kind of sees the outside problem you're trying to solve, but maybe you don't understand how, you have all these internal things that are happening that you don't want to either deal with, or you don't understand how they're affecting your business on the outside. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's more from a standpoint of just um, really digging in and trying to get a pulse on where businesses as a whole need additional help or where they're feeling pain points. Mm -hmm. And then that also informs our business in how we try to serve them better. So that's probably the, the main thing about the podcast is it informs our daily business in how we can um, just better inform the business owners we're working with. Nice. Yeah. It's like, pat. I mean, it's work, but it's like almost like passive understanding of the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, I guess that's part of the reason too, is like 
you know, worst case scenario, the podcast for me is at least a way to better understand. Mm. So it's almost like a, um, I don't know. It's just more like research for me. It's kind of like this thing where I can, I'm just out here talking and conversing with business owners to more intimately know their story. And while I'm doing this, I'm also understanding what is the broader landscape here. And maybe they're seeing things I'm not seeing that we should be looking at more closely. Yeah. I think that's part of the value I see in meeting people too, is so many people are trying to win this game Hmm. without knowing all of the pieces and rules that exist. Hmm. And like the more you get out and talk to businesses, the more you get out and talk to people in different parts of society, the better you understand the rules and know what pieces you're working with. Yeah. And then you can figure out, okay, how do they work together? Yeah, I would agree. Um, you, you know, you talk more from like a business standpoint, or like an individual standpoint of what we were talking about earlier, as far as like this, um, you know, start finish mentality. Um, I think it's both, both. I think yeah. cause like speaking at HR conferences, I tell people like, if you have this friend framework that we talked about earlier, how many of your employees would you be able to fill that out for? Mm-hmm. Like how many of your employees could you tell me how many siblings they have, why they studied what they studied in college, the main thing that they do with their time outside of work, what their dreams are. And if you don't know that, what would your workforce look like if you did know that for all of your employees? Hmm. Then you have a better understanding of the pieces that you're playing with. And yeah. You can yeah. Better. And in life in general, the, the just the more like if you understand that other people are uncertain about a career switch, then you don't feel insecure about it when you don't understand it. You you just are like, okay, well, this is how the rules work. Like everyone right. feels this way when they go through this transition. Yeah. And I think even for us, it's really trying to get at like the stickiness of that relationship between employees and their business. Um, yeah, go for it. Because <laughs> ultimately that that's going to be the thing that, that makes the business successful is having employees who are really um, committed to the vision of what the business is. The more, the more they see that you're committed to them, they want to be committed somewhere, but it's really making sure that they understand what that is. And then knowing how they can, for lack of a better term, plug into your business mission. Mm -hmm. So you have a, you know, a vested interest in understanding what your employees actually want. Um, and there may be cases where that's just, just not a fit and are people, maybe a, a, something else will be better for them. Maybe as their boss, you're the one telling them that's a better thing for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least, um, there's that understanding of, you know, where, if we are having problems, like, where are we going wrong here? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think to your point, I think a lot can be pulled out in just conversation, just trying to learn and, um, I guess that's kind of the the goal of your of your project in in some ways. Yeah, it's a it's a curiosity. It's just like an adventure. It's an exploration. What what's been one of the most? Uh, I'm sure you've had many of them. But what's been one of the most striking <clears throat> stories that's come to your ears from from doing this? I met a woman on December 30th. She lives in the UK, so we connected virtually. She was introduced to me through someone that I met in Philly in person, and she's a speaker. I think she's 43 now, and she told me the story of how 
she grew up in the UK. Her parents are from India. And when she was 10 years old, her parents were like, we want to take you and your younger brother over to India to see like your heritage and where we grew up. And they went there and on their domestic, on one of their domestic flights in India, the plane crashed and her mom, her dad and her brother all passed away. And she was pulled from the wreckage and she woke up back in a hospital in the UK and spent four months recovering from severe burns all over her body. And she told me that when they first gave her a mirror to look at herself, she thought that they played a prank on her. Like she thought they drew a face on her because she said she was a prankster as a kid and she couldn't fathom that she looked the way that she did. So it was this major shift in her life. And she was like, after four months, I got out of the hospital. And she said, Rob, that's when the bullying started that's when people started crossing the street because they thought I had some type of disease. That's when kids started throwing things at me to see if I felt any emotion. And that struck me because I was like, it's already bad enough to lose your entire family in a plane crash. It's so much worse to then get bullied for it throughout your life because of the way that you look as a result of surviving this crash. And that's why I tell people like you really want to understand the depth of people because these kids were bullying for her for a tragic incident that took her entire immediate family. Um, and that struck me because I say I, one of the things I've learned is the spectrum of life paths is so much wider than I could have imagined. You don't think about the fact that that is someone's lived experience. My lived experience is like I have my two parents. They're still together. I have two older siblings. We all were afforded the opportunity to go to college. I worked a job I didn't like. I was able to get out of that and do something I'm passionate about. My stress was like, oh, I don't have a lot of money. Like my friends are reaching milestones and I'm not or whatever it may be. It's never been as deep as as her stress. And not to, there's a, I think it's a personal choice. Like I see, I like to compare things in that way because for me, it's perspective. I, a lot of people talk about like toxic positivity of everything is relative, like if someone loses their job, it's still a really intense situation for them at that time. Mm. But I personally choose to see life as like, I admire the way that she's been able to get through this instance. It inspires me to get through whatever I'm going through. And yeah, I'm just, I the resiliency that I've seen through her and what she had to go through was striking to me because I've never been through anything that intense. Hmm. Yeah, I I tend to lean... That's a, that's a wild story. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I guess the, the hard part with that additionally too, is that it's like a, a constant reminder of that. You know what I mean? Some people want to just may want to, you know, remember, but kind of forget what kind of happened, but in her situation it might seem harder because she's constantly reminded of this. Um, I tend to look at situations the way you're describing as um, in the relative aspect, like how does that inform me or maybe I should gain some perspective mm -hmm. here from this. Um, I don't really see that as like a, a toxic thing, I guess, you know what I mean? I see, I, I tend to take the other side and be like, more, how does this better help me to do what I have to do or maybe stop complaining about things or <laughs> whatever the case, you know? Yeah, I tend to have a very stoic approach to life in that yeah, aspect. Yeah, same. Um, cool. Was there anything else you want to, you want to touch on today? 
no i think that i'm i'm happy to just have that i one of the my favorite quotes is that happiness is the difference between expectation and reality yeah so i have no expectations when i come on podcasts when i have meet people for my project so the way it goes is the way it goes and i'm just <laughs> happy to be here i like that uh well i, I close out most of the podcast with a, a quick question around at the end so maybe we'll do that and, yeah. and close it out sure um so what's what's the coolest thing that you've seen lately hmm. oh, that's a good question I want to say it's that book, the two hour cocktail hmm. party, because it's something and I really love practical things. Like when I do my speeches, I want to I don't want to like inspire people and they feel really into it in that moment and then they're done and they're like, OK, well, yeah, I want to be like, here's literally steps that you can take to improve your life. And I felt like that cocktail party book was a formulaic approach to something that I can implement in my life to improve my connections with people and to add value to other people's lives. So I'm looking forward to whenever it may be hosting my first cocktail party. Mm, no, I like that a lot. I really, thanks for that, uh, that introduction, to that book. I am yeah. looking forward to that. Um, what are some tools that you use in your life for some of these projects that you couldn't live without? The Google drive suite. Yeah. <laughs> I do a lot of keeping stuff in Google sheets. That's how I organize like, the gigs that I've done and the gigs that I have upcoming. My Google calendar is very important to me. It's how I, I stay on track with everything. My iPhone notes are important to me. I write everyone's story in iPhone notes before adding it to Instagram. Mm. And I also, I like to keep my thoughts in iPhone notes. It's all like the basic stuff, like the iPhone notes. Instagram is obviously a tool that's really important to me. But that, and then from a different standpoint, my bike is really important to me. Mm because I bike around the city to my meetings. So it's one of my prized possessions. It's like, if I don't have my bike, my life is a lot more difficult. Hmm. I like that. It's the first time we had a bike mentioned. So uh, <laughs> what are the uh, most transformational changes you're looking to make um, over the next 90 days? Hmm. That can be more personal or, or business oriented. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to figure out a way that I can start to create more predictability around my speaking because hmm. I signed to a manager a month ago. And so there's this sense of she's helping me find gigs, but it doesn't mean she's going to help me find all of my gigs. Like I have to be finding me gigs. Sure. And I've been doing that. And I, I want, I would like to get to a place where I know that the output or the, the input is creating output. Hmm. Like if I'm reaching out to 10 people that I might get one response or get, I just want to become more accurate with yeah. my, a systemized approach to how, how it happens approach to that. Yeah. yeah. And then I think that's like, I feel like I'm on cruise control in the sense of my fitness and my diet and all of that stuff. It feels like it's in a good place, but yeah, that's, that's like step one. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, what advice would you give to any entrepreneur who's looking to either start a business or start something, um, more of a movement what would you what advice would you give them i think you have to start and never stop hmm. like to, to really simplify it because a lot of people will have ideas and they'll never start so the it's not even worth having the idea in the first place because someone else will do it and then you'll look at them and be like i had this idea back in the day or whatever yeah so start because it goes back to the 
you will only know 5% of what you need to know. And it's really hard to tell if you're truly passionate about something before you're challenged with that thing, like doing, trying to meet people and no one's paying attention to it. I was interested in the project still at that time. So when people started becoming interested in it, it didn't change the way I felt about it. And as mm. people's interest spiked and then it ebbed and flowed or whatever, it didn't change my passion for it. So mm. I think starting is really important because then you, you quicken the learning process. And then the never stopping part is it's like Edison did 9,999 attempts. It's like the 10,000 that he made the light bulb work. And for me, I had $500 left in my name in 2018. And I think a lot of people would say, well, if you hit $0 in your bank account, then you failed. You have to get a job and do whatever. But I live by the Kid Cudi quote in one of his songs, <laughs> the end is never the end. Hmm. And I think a lot of people see fear as the end. But if you push past the fear, like if I had hit $0 in my bank account, it doesn't mean I have to stop the project. I could do a GoFundMe. I could get a part-time job. I could get a full-time job. So I think when you get to that point, like if you're feeling like stopping, you really have to question, have you explored every single avenue to make this work? Or are you just tired mm -hmm. in this moment? And oftentimes the case is you're really just tired and the path forward is more inconvenient than you wanted it to be. And as a result, you'd rather go back to comfort. But if you're truly passionate about it, you push through the tiredness and you explore all those other options that you haven't given a chance to yet. Yeah, that's one thing I always mention when people talk about like entrepreneurship and if they're you know not sure they should try something or not. It's like, well, worst case scenario, you kind of just go back to what you were doing. You know what I mean? Can, can I add a note to that? Yeah. I think people are so scared of starting things because they're like, well, if I start it and then I stop, like everyone's going to be like, look at him or look at her. They didn't do what they said they were going to do. Hmm. People do not care about you. Like they're not paying attention to you. And as someone, I would say it would be in my benefit if everyone was paying attention to what I was doing. But what you don't realize is people are so wrapped up in their own lives. You have to try really hard to get other people to give you their attention. Mm. So just because you start something, no one's going to be keeping tabs on you and waiting for that for you to fail. You just do it. And then if you sort of fade away, that's fine. At least you tried. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and why Why 10,000? What's the inspiration behind the 10,000? It was very simple. I just wanted it to be my career. So 10,000 mm. seemed high enough that yeah, I would require that. Mm. Seth Godin has a book called The Purple Cow. And he says, if you drive down the street and you pass a farm and you see a cow, you're not going to think twice. But if you drive past the farm and you see a purple cow you're going to take pictures you're going to upload it to instagram you're going to send it to your family and so like how do you turn things purple i think to meet one new person was not anything crazy to meet 100 new people would have been a cool new year's resolution a thousand maybe like a cool side project Ten thousand is what turned the concept of meeting people purple in my opinion and it gave me the ability to have something that i really needed to work towards over a long period of time once I went to an hour with each person and I think it made it a drastic enough number that people are like, Oh, this is interesting. Like if he's actually going to do this, I want to be part of it. Hmm. Is there, is there a plan for um, after the 10,000? Will it, they just continue or um, have you, if I, if Instagram still exists and I still have a, a platform to share people's stories, I think I'll continue to do it, but probably like a few people a week instead of a few people a day. Sure. And 
I don't see myself attaching another great number to it. I think at that point, I'll be focused on speaking a few times a month, having a wife and kids, which hopefully will happen before I hit 10,000. And then I would like to be a professor at a university, hmm. and teach a course to first year students where they pair off one-on-one -on -one every class period and do exactly what we're doing and learn from each other's backgrounds rather than a textbook or a PowerPoint. Yeah, that's cool. I like yeah. that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and besides Yard's IPA, what is your what is your favorite beverage? Mm. You know, it's funny. I'm get, I'm getting into teas now. Really? <laughs> As in like uh, like drinking tea at night because my parents always have tea after drink, dinner. I think it's celestial tea might be the thing. Huh. There's like the, just the boxes and it's like the herbal teas. Mm-hmm. But I've got like a vanilla tea there, this apple cinnamon one, this orange one, this like sinus soother, they call it. So tea and then Mio as well. It's like yeah, a little I like Mio. Yeah. flavor squirt thing. Like it improves my water intake. So those are the beverages that have become more important to my life outside of like beer or anything. But yeah, if I, I don't have any bottles of hard alcohol, but if I do get one, it'll be a bottle of scotch. Nice. Very cool. Um, well, you know, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. So the next minute or so is yours. Let everybody know, you know, any final thoughts you have or anything you want to plug. Sure. Uh, I guess one I'll, I'll end my insights on the fact that I think the best way to approach human connection is to treat it as an experience rather than a transaction, hmm. which we've talked about on the show, but when it's an experience, it becomes an adventure and you can just take it for what it is if you didn't connect with that person, oh, that was an adventure. Like my personality didn't line up with theirs. I wonder why. Almost the same way that a foodie would go to a restaurant. They don't like every meal, but the fun is the process of trying the meals and exploring the restaurants. Right. And if they liked everything, it might not even be as much fun. Yeah. And when you do like the meal, then congrats. Like you get to re go back to that restaurant in the future. You get to follow up with that person. Mm. So I think to treat it like an, a connection or an experience rather than a transaction and if people are interested in the connections that I'm making, they can find me on Instagram at Rob's 10 K friends. That's where I take a picture with everyone that I meet. I share their story and I have a website, Rob's 10 K friends.com. And then my speaking website is Rob Lawless.com. So they're interested in seeing that. And I feel like as I'm becoming a speaker, I'm also becoming knowledgeable about how to become a speaker. So I've had people ask me about that hmm. too. It's another place that I get to share. So I enjoy that, but yeah, that's pretty much it. And then I'll be around for eight more years. So if anyone ever wants to be a part of it now or in the future, just get in within that time. <laughs> cool, Rob. Thanks again. So thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not yet a subscriber, please go and hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and all major platforms, and you'll get notifications whenever new episodes are posted. If you want to write to us or have a business that may be a good fit for our show, feel free to reach out. Our email address is leverageandbeverage at gmail.com, and our Instagram is at leverageandbeverage. I'm Greg Soposinski, and as always, keep pushing forward one sip at a time. <laughs>